We've just finished talking about the four kings that Abraham fought. We had that special section that was an extended section about the king of Elam, which is southwestern Iran. We spent a lot of time on that. And finally, we came back in and we talked about the final or fourth king, the king of nations. We mapped finally all of these kings into that statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And I labeled all those kings. And it just shows you the march of time in prophecy. And that's really what this is about. Remember, it's an overview of prophecy. We talked about why prophecy isn't taught, what the problem with prophecy is. So I would challenge you, go over those notes again in Fundamentals of Prophecy. Abraham actually meets a fifth king, which is a very special king. Now remember, this whole line of prophecy, we tracked all these four kings of the Gentiles to the end of the Gentile rule. That's what we did. Well, guess what also Abraham had the honor of being involved with the kickoff in prophecy? The final king, that's the fifth king, but he's a very special king. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 14, and, and we're going to pick up at verse 18 in a moment. Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. The scene is going to be Mount Moriah. Remember also where Abraham was told to take his only son, his promised son, and sacrifice him, which was how many days' journey? Interesting. It was a three-day journey to sacrifice his son, who was a very special son, the son of promise, which he had to wait for in faith. And who was one of the major heroes of faith in Hebrews 11? Abraham. It's a very strong prophetic parallel. Remember, prophecy are concentric rings of four types and stronger four types and stronger four types until the actual fulfillment is accomplished. That's no accident, is it? So, we're not going to talk about the full story of Melchizedek because we just don't have time, but I'm going to give you all of the important details about it. Abraham, you remember when I, we started this, you may remember, it was a long time ago, so you may have forgotten, but thankfully history doesn't change. You know, he wasn't a poor Slav from Ur of the Chaldees, just hanging around with his family, you know, tending sheep, worshipping the moon god, which is now Allah, that they say his tribe worshipped Allah in those days. God called him out of that, as we know, and he had to agree to do that. Yeah, he was actually very wealthy. But remember what God told him, get out of your country, get away from your family, and go to a land that I will show you. All his life, he was working toward a city whose builder and maker was God. That's in itself basically what it was. But listen to these parallels. I want you to peek your ears, just like we just did about Isaac, the promised son, who was a long time in coming, very difficult. Matter of fact, Abraham's wife laughed. That's why his name means laughter. It took a long time, and it was a promise that was highly unlikely. It was impossible except for God. And then he finally comes, and then Abraham's told, you have to kill him. You have to sacrifice him. None of that would make sense except that when you draw the parallel of Abraham as God the Father and Isaac as Jesus Christ, his only son of promise, which took a long time, but just at the right time, he came. Remember when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac, he was going to do it, which showed his will to obey God no matter what, even if he didn't understand Remember, an angel stopped the sacrifice, and God provided what? A ram in the thicket. It's interesting. So the sacrifice was still made, but in the correct way. Abraham was wealthy, but remember also Abraham went to war with those kings and what this kind of was about. These kings had taken the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they had taken Lot captive, remember? What Abraham wanted to do was to save his nephew. There's a parallel I want you to see here. Because you need to see this if you're going to understand more fully, in my opinion, when we talk about Melchizedek, the parallel. Abraham saved his lower life relative out of a heathen city. 
He went to do that, and he went to battle. If Abraham is like God the Father, who would be the relative that's trapped in a city or a place? Israel. Also, very strongly, prophetically points to Jesus Christ and the church. God saved us out of the nations as the low-life people that we all are because we were chosen. Now, we weren't necessarily family like Lot was, so Israel was family to Jesus Christ. And God made a nation of these people. So God the Father adopted or made the nation of Israel his own out of adoption, if you will. But Jesus Christ came through them, so he had brothers of that same ilk. The relationship with us is that God adopted us through those Israelites, through that line of Judah. You see the relationship here? We are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ as God reconciled an Abraham to himself because he just chose him, and then a whole line of people, actually 12 tribes of people through him. You see these parallels here? Prophetically, Abraham is like God choosing Israel and saving Israel and battling these Gentile powers and Jesus Christ pulling us out of the world and eventually taking us home out of it fully and saving us. But there's a lot of battling. Here's the other parallel. When God sends Israel out, these four kings, who has Israel been fighting all these years with God's help? The Gentile world powers, right? Who is Jesus Christ going to battle? Well, it's not going to really be a big battle at the end because he's just going to come down the Gentile rule. Because Israel will be under Gentile rule. Jerusalem will be under Gentile rule, which it is now, until the time of the end. And we know at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, at the end of all of the Gentile powers, what happens? A rock or a stone gets cut out without hands, smites the image on its clay and iron, ridiculously weak feet, it all not only crashes, but it turns to such powder that it blows away in the wind and it's not heard of again. And then that stone turns into a mountain that engulfs the whole earth. And that's how we go out into eternity. You see the parallels here? It's exactly the same thing. So, Abraham has defeated these four kings who just defeated other five kings. And we didn't have to get into all of that. Now, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. Upon returning from the battle of these kings, Abraham meets a very significant person at a very significant place, Mount Moriah. Genesis 14 and verse 18. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which is king of... Right, exactly. Salem means peace. The city of peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. And he met him at Mount Moriah. This is what history holds. I'll tell you about that in a second. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Why is that significant? That's right, wow. That's right. That's a good word. Wow. He brings out bread and wine. What is the symbology of Christ who sacrificed himself for us? Bread and wine. His body is the bread we take in communion. Not his body, but then we commemorate. And his blood is wine. Isn't it interesting how prophetic this is? Why would Melchizedek bring him bread and wine? Now listen to this. He was a priest of God the Most High. This is interesting. This is a very special person. He has no lineage. We don't know really who this man is. Nothing's really said about him. But these... Well, I, no, he wasn't. He wasn't a Levite because he was also a king. I believe personally that he wasn't just an angel, that he was Jesus Christ. 
Look, that's open for speculation, right? I agree in the fact that he definitely is not just an average human being because he's got no lineage and he knows these certain symbols, which are very prophetic. One of the most prophetic characters in all of Scripture, Abraham. I just showed you how prophetic his life was, right? Let's read on. Listen to this. So he brings him out bread and wine, and he was priest of God of Most High. And he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High. So he had the authority in God's name to bless someone. That's not just an average human being. He identifies this God who he has the authority to bless in and who sent him. He's a priest of this God because he says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Hmm. I think we understand who Melchizedek serves. Pretty good. Now listen to this. This is interesting. In verse 20, And blessed be God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. So this Melchizedek already knows who the Most High God is. He identifies him. He also is a priest of the God of heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation. He also has the power to bless in God's name. And he also knows and states as a fact that this God delivered Abraham's enemies, these, oh, four kings, into his hand. Does this make sense? This is very prophetic. Who is going to be delivering the four kings into whose hand at the end of the age? You could say that Jesus Christ is going to deliver the four kings into our hands because our feet will crush the head of the enemy. We're going to come back with him on those white horses at the end of the tribulation. And there's going to be one final battle. And it's going to be all of them together. And we actually don't even have to fight the battle. Jesus Christ is going to do it. Just the sword or the word that comes out of his mouth will slay them all. And interesting. Just some parallels I want you to really see here. Now, listen to this. After all of that, what does Abraham respond in doing? Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Tithing. Tithing. Before there was an Israel to give the law of tithing to. Abraham knew something. He knew a lot of things that we just don't know. But we can see by the inferences that this man or this person, personage, Melchizedek, who is a priest of the God Most High, who Abraham doesn't have any question about. This priest brings Abraham communion. Communion! That's what he did! Isn't that amazing? I love it. And Abraham responds by giving his tithes of all the spoils from because he won those battles with those kings. Hmm. And isn't an extension of tithing for us, even though it's not a law, God, what? Loves the heart of a cheerful giver. Abraham was generous toward this Melchizedek because he knew something. God had trained Abraham in many things that we just do not know in the Bible, that we don't know. We do not know exactly the training that God directly gave Adam and Eve, but we do know the legacy of that training. We do know that there were things handed down by mouth from God that were handed down very successfully that they knew a lot of things. Look at the book of Enoch. We've talked about that, right? He was only the seventh from Adam. There was a lot of knowledge about God that was handed down before there was a Bible, before there was a people named Israel that God instructed to hand all this information off to others. And by the way, put a book together, the oracles of God called the Bible. So there's a lot of background that we just don't know, but it's a rich and full background. So all I'm trying to say is when we look at Scripture, read between these lines. Look at the interaction between these characters. Look at the prophetic value 
The more we understand and look at these things, the more we understand when the New Testament writers, who knew this stuff very well, when they hearken back to it in chapter 11 of Hebrews. Isn't that amazing? This is all faith. This man brings communion before Christ has supposedly even come. That to me is staggering. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham or Abram. He wasn't Abraham yet. Now, these kings are around. He's probably they're still there. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods to yourself. So there's nothing about tithing here. This is about Satan. The value to Satan, he already owns everything here as the king of this world. Sodom is one of those places that was founded by, remember who founded Sodom? The first king, Nimrod. So this is Satan's city under the king of Satan. He was defeated by Abraham or Abram. You see this tie here. So he's saying to Abraham, I'm going to make a deal with you, Abraham. Yes, you defeated me, but I'll tell you what, you have license to take all the booty. It's all yours now. You defeated me. You can take everything, but I'll make a deal with you. Just leave the persons. Leave me the people of the city. And you can take the goods. You, you can take, you can strip the city bare of all the gold, of all the silver, of all the war implements, of all the food. I don't care, but leave me the people. He wants to take the people to hell with him. That's where he's going. That's what this is about. That makes sense? But I think what Sharon was asking if she was getting king of Sodom confused with Melchizedek because there's really no separation. That's right. That's what you, you gotta watch. That's what I was trying to say. There's, that's what scripture is very famous for. But I explained this. I'm glad you brought it up because I did explain this in my study of the book itself, this book of Genesis. You're right. It is confusing. But there are opposite sides of the spectrum. That's right. And Sodom is the world. Yeah. And Abraham is taking from the God Most High and refusing to take anything from the King of Sodom. That's right. Exactly, but I think the focus here is looking at it from the king of Sodom's standpoint. Why does he say he finds no value? He was the king of everything. This man was wealthy. He's saying, strip me bare of all the gold, all the horses, all the chariots, all the war implements. It's like the federal government saying, take the treasury, take the Fed, take everything. Just leave me the United States citizens. Just let me have them. That's what they're doing. Aren't they doing that? They're destroying everything around us because they want our souls. That's what this is about. Very prophetic, but does that make sense now? You're right. It, the problem is it breaks into a thought. But if you read it from the standpoint of why this is here, it's the focus is Sodom. The concept is out of all the spoil that Abraham has right to, he's going to tithe that. He was a wealthy man anyway. But now he's even much more wealthy because he's got all of the spoils from war. And this is part of these kings and who they are and what they do in their personalities all through history, which is proving more of nothing changes as history rolls out. This is what started back then, and we're just tracing it through. All right. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. Melchizedek was said to be a priest. Remember that? Remember that? Remember that? I just mean, I know you remember it, but I want you to keep it in your mind. I know you have longer memories than that. What did he say? I can't remember a thing. Hebrews 1? Hebrews, I have to look because I don't remember. Hebrews 5, verse 1. 
That's why I like you teaching, Mendola, because I never remember nothing you say. You're a good teacher. All right, so yeah, he that was Hebrews. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Um, I was looking at 22 where it says. And Abram said to. Yeah. That, yeah, it's kind of like that, isn't it? That's a very good observation. I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread, even a shrewd latch, that I will not take anything that is yours from Sodom, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Yes, and that's for us, isn't it, too? Don't take anything from this world. Store up treasures in heaven. Because then you owe him nothing. Remember, the debtor is the slave. That's right. That's exactly it. That's it. Very good. I like that. That was well worth the whole conversation. It was really good. But you see the parallels. They just keep getting deeper and deeper and deeper. It's amazing. Okay. Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Now, isn't that kind of strange? We know that in the social religious structure of Israel, God made them very separate, didn't he? And also remember that even Abram, is this before he's Abraham, so he's the promise to be the progenitor of Israel. So we're not even in the picture yet because his name's not changed. But the point is this. God already knew that Abraham was going to be the progenitor of Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, and he already had the laws and everything that they were going to do, right? And he separated the priesthood from the kingship. They never mixed. They never did in Israel's line. So this is a very important thing. Why? Let's read why. Hebrews 5, now we're all the way in the New Testament now. Verse 5 in chapter 1. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. This is how they did it from the Aaronic priesthood. To offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Remember the Levites? The Levites, not Levites. Levites. <laughs> Let me get the T in there. Levites. Remember that they were to be taken care of by the other tribes. Why? Because they weren't supposed to have their own dedicated land. Their portion was the Lord. And their job was to minister. You know, it took 50,000 people to minister to that temple. They rotated people in and out, in and out. It was harder for them to work at that temple than it was for the other tribes to grow their, their fruits and vegetables and their crops. But they had to feed the priesthood because the priesthood's job was to take care of their relationship to God. So, isn't this? So, every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God. And this is a very special thing that they did, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. They did the sacrifices. They took care of the whole sacrificial system and that temple. Verse 2, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Now, you know, that's what the priests did. They're the ones who did the sacrifices. The people had to bring the animals. They had to bring their tithe of their increase, and they brought the animals. And that's why Jesus got mad at the money changers, because when it was too far for them to carry their animals or bring animals, they would buy sacrificial animals in the temple, and the money changers were making merchandise of them, just like these people make merchandise of us who sell all these books and Christian things and Christian Ouija boards soon in your local uh, bookstore. This is... Well, I'm being facetious, but I'm not, it's not that far away. It's not that far away. And you know what? With yoga and all this stuff, I'm telling you, people are going to be like, oh yeah, empty your mind. Jesus, speak to me. I made a mock-up of a Ouija board. I edited it and I put Jesus, speak to me on it. And I said, Christian's prayer board. Did I send you a copy of it? 
No? Just I gotta like send it to you. <laughs> it is why I get in trouble, but only among a couple people yeah, do they send that. Okay. You see, he's supposed to offer sacrifices for all his own sin first before he can sacrifice on behalf of the people. Verse 4. No one takes this honor of the priesthood upon himself. He must be called by God just as Aaron was. Now we're talking about Melchizedek, who was a priest sent by God. We know that. He said that. Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, and this is a quote from Psalm 2, which we're going to read in a second, You are my son. Now this is in the Psalms way before Christ came in the time order, correct? But he's quoting in Hebrews exactly what David wrote in the Psalms, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. For reference, let's just go read Psalm 2. So if you want to go back to Psalm 2 and verse 2. This is what the writer of Hebrews was quoting down in actually verse 7. But this is how important that concept is. Psalm 2 and verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against the anointed one. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Didn't this just happen to Abraham? The kings gathered together and took their stand against Abraham. Didn't that just happen? He fought those four kings. And they actually fought five kings. That was to save his nephew. And he won. And then this fifth king and priest comes to him. You see the opening argument here? That's what I'm just saying. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, we could say against Abram, in what we talked about before, and against the anointed one. Capital A, capital O, so we know who this is. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. Now he's talking also prophetically about these end time versions of these kings, which we trace to the modern day configuration around Israel. We did that. You know Israel's in the noose, and the noose is tightening, and these Gentile kings are looking to destroy her through whatever mechanisms they have. So he's saying here, let us break their chains and throw off their fetters. Verse 4, the one, capital O, enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, now listen to this. He's saying this in past tense, and this is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ even came, never mind through tribulation and the millennium that's supposed to come, which is even here yet. I have already, past tense, installed my king on Zion. Zion. My holy hill. I don't want to touch the screen, but I'm getting awfully close because look at what we're pointing at. This little tiny place. This little tiny place. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, quote, You are my son today. I have become your father. Ask of me, verse 8, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. I told you of the prophecy back in Genesis when the dying Jacob gives his 12 sons a prophecy. What does he say about Judah? Specifically, he says, the scepter of rulership is yours and it will not depart from you until it comes to whom it belongs. Well, let's see. The iron scepter is going to come to the final king through the line of Judah in the Davidic covenant, the king of the Jews, 
and then the king of the world, who will be the rightful owner, prophesied by Jacob himself back in Genesis. Isn't that amazing? Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You will rule them with an iron scepter. When is that going to happen? We know that Jesus said he will rule with a rod of iron. And when is that going to be? It ain't yet. The millennium. This is what this is talking about. Listen to this. What did you say? <laughs> Don't be sorry. All right. Listen to this. What is he going to do with that iron scepter? Verse 9. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 5. Did you see that little quote? that he gave in Hebrews. Look at all of the scripture surrounding it in Psalm 2. All he said in Hebrews is today, you are my son. But look at all of the scripture prophesying just exactly who Christ is going to be as king and also priest. Remember the context we're talking about here in Hebrews is the priesthood. But Psalms is definitely talking about him also being the king. And he says here in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 6, and he says in another place, and this is in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And I'm just going to read this to you. Psalm 110. I'm just going to read it. You can turn it if you want. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies footstool." Now, didn't Jesus use this as a little bit of a parable? They couldn't figure this out. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Here we go with that scepter again. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle who are his troops going to be? Us. Arrayed in holy majesty, from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind in 110 verse 4. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. How many kings? Four. In the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, four kings plus the resurrected Roman Empire plus this kingdom of iron and clay, which could also mean the kingdom of the ethereal making its way into these dimensions even more through the mixture of DNA, which is a kingdom. Look at Joel's army in chapter 2 and see if he's not talking about human beings or something else. That either is a mixture of human beings and or demons coming in, possessing human beings. But you're going to see some super duper human stuff happening in Joel's army. I think it's chapter 2, but it's in the book of Joel. Continue verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Remember his passion? Remember that? And he asked that that cup be taken from him. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect. And by the way, what is it for us too? What are we told in Scripture? That we are made perfect through suffering. But that's the point. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. In the line of, or in the order of, like, for instance, 
Aaron had a priesthood. So all of the priests who were ordained from the Levites in the, in the order of that priesthood. It's just a, like in the order of a king's, a line of kings, order of, you know, that's basically what it is. So I think we're actually going to stop there today. Next week, we're going to talk about some interesting things. We're going to end up the prophecy primer here. And we're going to talk about the timing and the fulfillment of end times events, the nature and the timing of this thing called the millennium, and the timing of the rapture of the church. Now, most of us know that these things are going to happen, and basically in the time order of how they're going to happen. But here's the thing. What we're going to talk about is the modern-day views, and there are multiple views that multiple people have from multiple backgrounds of how all this is going to roll out. We're going to talk about the preterist, the historicist, the idealist, and the futurist. We're going to talk about those. They're amillennialists. They're postmillennialists. They're premillennialists. And then there's also the rapture of the church. The pre-tribbers, the mid-tribbers, the post-tribbers, the pre-wrath, no wrath. There's people who believe all kinds of things. So we're going to sort through this minute. Say again? It depends if you all be quiet. Just let me teach. Yeah, so anyway. Yes. There's no recorded lineage. Yeah, that's right. And that's the point. But there's not his lineage, this is in the order of his priesthood and the combined priesthood and kingship, which only one other person fulfilled that, and that was Jesus Christ. The combining and a priest, that's what, that's what Hebrew was, Hebrews was proving that, using Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 to corroborate it, and we studied back in Genesis how all this started with the, this Melchizedek who offered communion to Abraham, who, who Abraham tithed, and then Satan says... You know what? Okay, I'm done here, but just give me the people. <laughs> so that's really what this is all about. And that's how serious this is. And it talks all about him ruling with a rod of iron and all that stuff. So that's what we're going to do next week. All right? So you're all free to go.